Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, everybody. Hi, Miss Kathy. Good to see you. Good to see you. Man, what a great day. Thank you all for being here. Thanks for uh, spending time in the house of the Lord with the body of Jesus. And thanks for tuning in online if you're watching us online this morning as well. But uh, it is just great to be here. I send greetings from our pastor uh, this morning as he is out this holiday weekend with some family. And, uh, but he sends his love and greetings to you and, and uh, joins us probably online at some point, either live or always later, will critique and send me notes and should have said this. You really messed that up. He did text me totally off script one time, but he did um, mention one time he was out. I preached and he said, I hadn't had a chance to watch it yet, but did you say anything controversial? And I'm like, no, I don't think so. So he's, he's always kind of, kind of why anyway, Let's just press into God's word. Uh, this morning, we are starting a, a new series. It's a joy to be able to start a new series with us this morning. Uh, Pastor Scott finished uh, a six-month journey last week through the book of Hebrews, and so this week we start a new series in the book of Hebrews. Yeah. Uh, as we were working through Hebrews the last six months, we had said kind of all along Uh, We took a quick look at the beginning of chapter 11, but we said we're going to come back to chapter 11 uh, in the summer. So we're going to take the next nine weeks and unpack some of the characters that are listed in in Hebrews chapter 11. And you say, well, why is that significant? Well, let's remember that the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrew believers. Uh, They were Jewish by blood, but they were followers of Christ. And so they turned away from all the traditions and all the rituals to follow Jesus. And so uh, as the writer of Hebrews was challenging them about the goodness and the greatness of God, that he's greater than all these things, he's established this new covenant that the blood of Jesus is greater than all the old covenant. And he is our great high priest and and he's encouraging them. Chapter 11, he gives them this, this little snapshot of all these lives of people that had walked passionately with Jesus who risked it all and became landmark heroes of the faith. And so there's at least 17 characters that are listed in Hebrews chapter 11, but then there's a couple of verses that refer to all these other people that we may not even know, but these Hebrew believers would have understood. And so uh, the writer of Hebrews kind of laid those names out there and the, the readers would have understood the background and the story and what was the risk that they took and what did that look like? And when they took a step of faith and lived passionately for Christ, what did that look like? How did God fulfill his promise through that life situation? And so we thought it'd be good just to kind of press back into that a little bit. So we're going to do nine weeks in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Um, in order to do that, we do have some, some guests, some friends that are coming in this month. Uh, next week, uh, we have Don Pusick coming. Don is serving down in Louisiana and uh, just a great guy. He was with us last summer. You probably remember him. Um, we have Dr. Stephen Lee coming in. He's a friend of Southbridge, good friend of Pastor Scott. Uh, he's church planting down in Florida. He'll be with us in a couple of weeks. The end of the month, uh, Dr. Alex Hamaya will be back with us. He was with us last summer. He'll be with us again. He pastors up in Tulsa, and he's going to be passing through, uh, so he's going to stop in and, and spend some time with us. And so a lot of folks that are going to unpack some of these characters. And so uh, if you've been following along for the last six months with your Hebrews uh, study Bible and journal, uh, you might have to grab your big Bible as well, because we're going to end up in some other places along the way. Matter of fact, this morning, looking at our first character that we're unpacking, we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 4. But let's just set up this series just a little bit. Can I do that? Uh, Because as we're looking at uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and really unpacking that, it is vitally important, right? Context is critical. So it's important to know exactly where in this letter did the writer of Hebrews start mentioning these great characters of faith? What did that look like and what was the setup for that? How would they have understood exactly what he was saying? And so um, to, to understand Hebrews 11, now I'm not a math guy, but I do know that 11 comes between 10 and 12. 
and before 13. So, uh, right before the close of the letter, chapters 12 and 13, he gives us this, this glossary of great heroes, examples of the faith. And right before that, closing out chapter 10, uh, he, he just listed some great things for us. So, I'm going to skim some, some passages really fast just to help us understand where these heroes of the faith, these examples of faith, where they were risking it all. Where did that sit? in his challenge to them. So just real quick, if, if you have your Bible open in Hebrews chapter uh, 10, uh, if, you, if you were to read verses 19 down through 39, you get phrases like this, and I'll just skim some things. Uh, the writer is saying, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. He says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. Let us stir one another up and encourage one another. He goes on, he says, don't throw away your confidence. Um, he says, you need endurance. He says, my righteous will love by faith. He says, don't shrink back and be destroyed. He says, have faith and persevere uh, or preserve your soul. And so the writer is kind of connecting all of what he had shared so far in this letter that, you know, Jesus is the greater covenant. He's the greater mediator. Uh, his power, his love is greater than, than everything else. His blood is greater than the blood of the old covenant, um, that, that through his blood, he transforms us to be the people that he called us to be. And, and then he connects, right, the close of chapter 10 and those characters that he's talking about in verse 11. Then he comes back right away in, in chapter 12 and, and as he moves toward the close, he says in, in chapter 12, verse 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer, if you don't have that word underlined or marked in your Bible, you need to do that, to offer, he says, to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And, and that word offer means to serve, it means to worship. It comes from a Greek word which, which really means a menial hired servant. Uh, in other words, I have nothing to give God. There, there's nothing that I can do that's spectacular, like, oh, God, you should really be proud to have me, right? No, we come to him in brokenness and sin as a menial hire, as a servant. And what do we do? We offer to him our very lives as acceptable worship. Now, let me just say right here, worship is not simply singing a song, Right? It can be, you can sing and worship, but you can sing and not worship. So when Bryce comes up and he says, hey, let's stand and worship, that's an invitation for you to worship. It doesn't mean that you are worshiping. But you can worship in song, you can worship in work, you can worship in testimony, you can worship in deeds. Everything that we do in our life exudes from an attitude of worship because we are broken before God, transformed by God, and everything we do in life, every conversation we have, every action that we take, it is simply an act of worship before God because we are offering ourselves to Him as acceptable. And then we slide down to chapter 13, 20, 21, as Pastor Scott was closing out last week, he hit these verses again. He says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, underlying this, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through, critical word, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Okay? So, to equip, we talked about that before, so we won't press in deep, but the, the word equip means to, to complete, to mend, uh, to, to sort of uh, equipped, to fully be trained, to be made complete, to be mended, because that's what we do. We come to God in our brokenness with nothing to offer. And what does he do? He mends us. He heals us. He completes us. He, he makes us useful so that we can do what? We can live our lives as a, a sacrifice of worship through Jesus Christ. So in other words, it's him doing through us what we can't do ourselves. And so uh, what, when we look at this idea of risking it all, it simply means that I'm living in absolute abandonment to Jesus Christ. That I'm putting my yes on the table before I know the question. Are you willing to do that in your walk in relationship with God? Are you willing to say, God, the answer is yes. Now, what's your question? 
God, I'm willing to live my life for you because I have faith in you. I have trust in you. I have surrendered my life to you. So if we're going to ask that question, then it's important to know what is worship and, and how do I do his will that he's talking about right here? How do I risk it all to live by faith? Well, I have to understand faith, right? And the idea of faith is, is really kind of a tough thing when we press into it. If we're going to live by faith, we have to define faith. And so that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews does. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, you can see it. It says, now faith is the assurance, underline that word, circle it, assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so to help us understand faith, the writer of Hebrews puts two lines in parallel with one another. And two critical phrases, the assurance and the conviction. Your translation may say uh, something else. It may talk about evidence or, or conviction. Um, but he takes these two words. The assurance refers to the essence of su or the substance of something, right? If I have assurance, it speaks to the essence or the substance of something, which is what? It's Jesus, because he's greater than. We just kind of walked through all that. He's greater than. I have assurance because Jesus is the substance of my faith. But then he also ties in the Greek term that, that's translated conviction, which is really referred to as a test. It's, it's something that stands up under a test or a trial. In other words, it's been proven to be true. In other words, then I can have assurance in the substance of my faith, which is Jesus, but then the action of my faith is being faithful in God. And so that's where we get this idea of risking it all. How do I risk it all? I have a confident assurance in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I can live by faith because he's been tested and true. So it's in that context then that the writer of Hebrews gives us this great list of examples. Here's how God has proven himself faithful and true. Therefore, you can have assurance and you can risk it all. You can put your life on the line for the person of Jesus Christ. So faith is a confidence in God. It's a firm conviction that what he says is true and that what he promises he will do. Working through Hebrews, I think the, the one thing that we picked up consistently is that God invites us, he invites you to encounter him. He invites you to himself. He reveals himself to you so that he can then do a transforming work in you, which then will allow you to let him do a great work through you, right? He has to do a work to us to reveal us, to reveal himself to us. Then he does this work in us. Then he does this work through us. And, and that's the testimony of these characters that we begin to unpack in chapter 11. Because God did great work through them, not because they were great, but because the God of their faith, the object of their faith was great and is great. Is the object of your faith great? I think that's part of what we're going to see this morning as we unpack. So he gives these examples. There's great men, great women. Some of the stories we kind of know, some we don't know. There, there's references to people being cut in half and being tortured. We don't know all the people that he's referring to, but obviously the readers of this letter would have understood every one of these people. And they would have said, wow, yes, God is true. Yes, God is faithful. Yes, I can place my trust in him. Uh, it is secure in the person of Christ. And so he begins in the first character that I want to look at, and I think it's perfect. I don't think it's an accident that the, re the writer of Hebrews put Abel right at the very beginning of this list, because what Abel represents to us is a life of radical surrender and worship. We don't see Abel doing some great thing. We don't see him, you know, having walls fall down around the city of Jericho. We don't see him parting waters. We simply see him living a faithful life before God. 
He lived his life in, in radical worship and surrender. He was faithful to God. He came to God by faith. Look at verse 4, Hebrews chapter 11. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, he died. Though he died, he still speaks. So, Thousands of years, generations later, he is still speaking. The blood, the life, the voice of Abel is still speaking to followers of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he came to God by faith. We want to unpack that a little bit. But as we, as we do, um, we, we have to simply say, but what, what did Abel represent? What would these readers have understood about Abel? Now, I don't know if you've ever been in, you know, a business meeting or a doctor's office or something or maybe concussion protocol and, and they're asking you questions, right, word association, kind of like if I were to say light, you say dark. If I say love, you say, if I say able, you say why? <laughs> because it's hard in our mind to separate Cain and Abel, isn't it? Cain being the older brother, Abel being the younger brother. And so the emphasis here is on Abel. He, his emphasis is by faith, Abel did this. And yet every time we refer to Cain and Abel, it's always Cain and Abel. Is it because Cain was the older and he came out first or? Well, no, I think what we see and what they would have understood is the power of the testimony of the life and the faith of Abel. Because they were different but it's almost impossible for us to separate the two. But I think that's partially true because both of them have a living legacy in the hearts and lives of people. And we're gonna see that, we're gonna unpack a couple of things. I have two representations, I have two natures, I have two responses to share with you this morning. And they both represent the life of either Cain or Abel. So as we unpack this, I want to be careful because I don't want to simply make this a history lesson, right? A lot of times we jump into church life and we do Bible study because we're gaining knowledge, but knowledge alone does not bring transformation. The real question is, God, what do you want to do with the truth of your word and how do you want to transform my life? So I don't want you to leave here simply saying, oh, that was a great history lesson. Well, we need to look at history because we need to understand exactly what these Hebrew readers would have understood when, when the writer said, hey, it is by faith that Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. So in order to do that, we're going to have to jump back. And, and we're introduced to these two brothers, these two men, back in Genesis chapter 4. So if you have a Bible or if you have your app or your tablet or whatever you have, just kind of open it up. And we're going to jump back to Genesis chapter 4, where these two men are introduced to us. Now, it is somewhat interesting because when we look at the life of, of Cain and Abel, Abel is the one with the greater testimony to us this morning. And yet, when you look at the text, when you look at Genesis chapter 4, you almost see Cain more in the spotlight, because Cain is actually referred to in these first 16 verses of Genesis 4, he's referred to 13 times, while his brother Abel is only referred to seven times. And of those seven times that Abel's name is actually mentioned, only three of them he's mentioned by himself. Four times he's mentioned as a brother of Cain. Then there's three other times completely that his name is not even mentioned. He's simply referred to as a brother. So Cain almost gets a greater spotlight, but yet Abel is the one that's held up by faith. So let's just read, if we can, in Genesis chapter 4 for just a moment, and I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, emphasis and a little dialogue as we go along to sort of understand the context just a little bit. And it's interesting because Genesis 3, we know, is where the fall happened. That's where Adam and Eve sinned against God. And then Genesis chapter 4, we see where man sinned against man. Didn't take long, did it? One commentator said, in Genesis chapter 3, we see the root of sin, and in Genesis chapter 4, we see the fruit of sin. And I think it's very telling for our day and age as well. So we pick up in Genesis chapter 4, beginning in, in uh, chapter 1, he simply says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord, verse 2. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. Verse 3, underline these first five words. Uh, in the course of time, 
It's important to understand in the course of time, Cain brought, circle that word brought, you're gonna see it again in just a moment, to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock of their fat portions. When we understand that the phrase in the course of time, it means not a completion of time or a completion of events, it simply means a scheduled time or an appointed time. Um, this would have come from God working six days in creation and taking a Sabbath. That's what he would have taught Adam and Eve, to work the ground in the garden and to take a Sabbath rest. And so it's pretty clear to me that there was a set time that Adam and Eve would have taught his boys, his family, his descendants to worship God, to take a time and set that time aside. That's what that phrase is referring to. It's in the course of time or at the appropriate time, at the set time he brought, Cain brought to the Lord an offering. Abel also brought. That the word brought is, is critical because it means it brought it to an appointed place. So we have the picture in, in Genesis chapter four of the boys both doing the things that they were taught right? I am bringing something at a certain time to a certain place because that's what I'm supposed to do. I look at it and I go, okay, so the earliest family must have known this definite place for worship. The mom and dad must have taught them appropriately because they both brought an offering to the Lord. Um, why would they know to do that? Well, because they were taught that. And what is the significance that it says in, in chapter 11 of verse 4 of Hebrews that by faith Abel brought an offering, but Cain also brought an offering? So, so we pick it up in the middle of chapter, uh, chapter 4 in verse 4 of Genesis, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, circle that word, and his face fell, circle that because that's sort of a, uh, I'm downtrodden, I'm turning my face away from the Lord, uh, my eyes are no longer gazed on him, I'm down in the face. And now all of a sudden he's angry with God. It's really interesting, uh, we'll talk about that. The Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry and, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Now. Just for clarification, this is not about works. This is, this is not about works. This is not, well, you didn't do good enough. No, you didn't come properly. If you come properly, he's asking these questions because God is seeking to restore him. And, and so he's, he's simply saying, you didn't, you, didn't come, you didn't come right. You can do it and you can do it right. But, but why are you angry and why, why are you discouraged? Why is your face fallen? And, and so if you do well, in other words, if you come properly, we're, we'll press into that. Um, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So here's the battle. We're going to talk about this a little bit. There's a battle between his sin nature and his coming to God, right? So there's a tension there. Uh, verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against him. He rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, dude, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying from, to be from the ground. That, that's important. We're going to see that in Hebrews chapter 12 in just a moment. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me. Get this, look at he's blaming God. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face, and I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. God never said that. See, he's doing exactly what mom and dad did. They started blaming God. They started putting words in God's mouth that God never said. Why? Because he's angry and he's in rebellion, walking away from God. He's turned his face from God. So then verse 15, then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain. Scholars kind of question whether this was a physical mark or just a hedge of protection. I tend to think it was just sort of a hedge of protection around Cain, that he was going to care for Cain, even in his sin and his rebellion, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. You hear that? Cain went away. 
he went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. See, there's a definite parallel between God's dealings with Cain in Genesis 4 and his dealings with Adam and Eve in chapter 3. And I love what happens because the Lord asks these questions. And he's asking questions of Adam and Eve and of Cain just like he asked questions of you and me. God's always asking us questions. And, you know, when he looks at it, look, look what he says. He's, he's giving them an opportunity. He's, he's asking these questions not to get information from them. God doesn't prick your heart and draw you close and ask you questions about your life and your actions and your activity and your faith because he wants to know. He's asking you questions because he knows and he's trying to restore you. And so what, what he's saying here, look, I love the questions. In chapter 3, verse 9, he cries out in the garden after Adam and Eve sinned. What did they do? They ran and hid. What do you and I do in our sin? I don't know about you, but in, in my sin, when I sin, my tendency is to run from God and God's people. Because when, I, when I'm harboring sin in my life, the last place I want to be is in the presence of God and God's people. So what do I do? I go hide. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They, they ran and they hid. And so what did God say in ch chapter 3, verse 9? Adam, where are you? Where are you? In conversation between services, some of our tech guys brought up a great point because it was like one guy said, the real question is, why are you where you are? That's really kind of what God wants to know, right? God knew exactly where they were, but he was wanting to know, why are you where you are? Why are you off hiding from me when my desire is to restore you and love you? I, I created you in my image for my glory to risk it all and live by faith. And what are you doing? You're running and hiding from me. In chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Oh, why are you discouraged? Why are you distraught? Why, why are you turning away from me when I have everything for you? Why are you choosing in rebellion to walk away from me and turn your face? Why are you angry with me because of your sin when I'm trying to restore you? In verse 9, chapter 4, where's Abel, your brother? Interesting because God asked him the question. Abel's like, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And then God's immediate response is like, I know where exactly where it is because his blood is crying out from the ground for vengeance, right? Related to sin, here's the parallel, right? Between the blood of Abel and the blood of Jesus, he brings up in chapter 12 of, of Hebrews, right? Where the blood of Adam is, is screaming for vengeance, the blood of Jesus is screaming for forgiveness and restoration. Verse 10, what have you done? How many times has God just come to you and go, where are you? Where are you? What have you done? See, he's asking that not because he, he needs to know. He knows. He's asking because his desire is for you to turn in repentance and confession. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why he's asking the question. When God is prompting your heart through the presence of his Holy Spirit, where are you? What have you done? It's because he's seeking to restore you. He's seeking to love you and draw you to himself. So what we see here is that worship is a decision. Uh, to choose to live my life as an attitude of worship is really an attitude of my heart before a holy, righteous God. Do I trust him? Do I surrender to him? Can I be perfectly confident in his provision? Am I willing to risk it all because he's a faithful, trustworthy God? The answer is yes. Now I choose to live in worship. To quote Pastor Scott accurately, I had to text him this week and say, so how exactly do you say this again? I love it because he says it often, but I wanted to get it exactly right the way he says it. He says to worship God is to see him accurately and respond appropriately. When, when I pick up the truth of God's word and I study the truth of God's word and I discover his character and his nature revealed to me and I see him accurately, the question is, do I respond appropriately? 
When God calls me to a life of purity, when God calls me to a life of of justice and mercy and grace and forgiveness, that's in his word. The question is, do I respond appropriately? If I do, that is an act of worship. If I don't, it's rebellion and sin as I turn my face away from God. And so what happened in Genesis 4, both brothers saw God accurately, but only Abel responded appropriately by faith. So then we look and we say, so what is it the Hebrew believers would have understood from this passage? Well, I I see two representations, I see um, two natures, and I see two responses. So I'm going to just unpack those for you. Because the two representations are are Cain and Abel. Cain, uh, they, they became a representation of mankind moving in different directions from God, right? While, while uh, Cain was moving away from God, that's one option, or we can move to God in faith like Abel. That's your choice today. It's your choice in this moment, and it's your choice every moment of every day. You either move to God in faith, or you move away from God in rebellion. And that's what Cain would have represented to them. So, some believe, and scholars have some different opinions on some of this, but some believe that, that Cain brought a, a type of offering to the Lord that was not acceptable. I'm not really sure that I see that in the text. Because some will hold true, and this is one of those, I'm, I'm not positive, but when I, when I look at the text, God told them both to do exactly what they were doing. One was a shepherd, one was tilling the ground. When, when I look at it and I go, would that have been acceptable sacrifice. What was he doing? He wasn't coming on the day of atonement. That hadn't even happened. That hadn't even started yet. So they were simply coming in worship and they were bringing an offering representing the the faithfulness of God. Kind of like when we give an offering, when we give a, a, a tithe of what God has entrusted to us as stewards, what are we doing? We're simply giving because God is so faithful. Amen? God is so faithful, and what do we do? We bring our first fruits to him, and that's what they would have been doing, and and it would have been natural for Cain to bring a grain or a fruit offering because that's what he was producing. And when you look further in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 26 and Leviticus chapter 2, as the Mosaic law is being unfolded, grain and fruit offerings were perfectly acceptable to God. So I can't imagine that this would not have been acceptable to him as an offering. I don't think it was an issue of what you brought. I think it was a question of how you brought it. It wasn't so much the the offering that was rejected. It was Cain that was rejected, right? His offering was rejected because of Cain, not Cain being rejected because of his offering. What God was saying is your heart is not right. That's why the writer of Hebrews said it was by faith that Abel brought an offering, but Cain also brought an offering. You see the difference? We can come to God by faith or we can simply come on our own with our own value, with our own worth, with our own works. And and I think that's what separated, that was the difference here. And so the representation of Cain is living really in rebellion against God. What does Cain represent? Cain represents living in rebellion against God. Cain had, as Paul told young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Cain had a form of godliness and a form of religion, but he denied the power of God because he did not come by faith. 2 Timothy chapter 3 simply says, as Paul is teaching young Timothy, he says, hey, people are going to be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. See, you can fool people when you come to church, you can fool people when you walk out in the community, but you're not going to fool God. You can have an appearance of godliness and yet deny his power. You can come to God in brokenness and surrender, and God knows your heart, right? You're coming to him in faith, or you can come to him in pride and say, yeah, I got this. Yeah, God, you sure are lucky to have someone like me. (laughs) Wrong attitude, right? 1 John chapter 3 um, I love this because outside of, outside of Genesis chapter 4, where, where Cain is listed, he's listed three other times in the Bible, once in the book of, of Hebrews that we read, and then two other times because in 1 John chapter 3, John is writing and he says, we should not be like Cain. How'd you like to be known like that for generations? Hey, don't be like Cain. Hey, don't be like Dave. Remember, remember that? 
I'm a Cub fan. Anybody remember Bartman? Down the left field line, down the third base line when he, okay. So what became known as a running joke was don't pull a Bartman, right? I mean, is that how you want your life to be known? That's how Cain became known. He was a representation of those that are living in rebellion. First John chapter three, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one. Cain became a representation of that guy that practiced false righteousness of the flesh, not the righteousness of God through faith. So here it is generations later, they're saying, hey, man, don't be like Cain, be like Abel. This is what the Hebrews would have picked up on. Jude chapter 11, I love this. It says, for uh, woe to them for they walked in the way of Cain. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. They abandoned themselves for the sake of religion. That's how Cain became known. And and these Hebrew writers would have said, man, I I don't want to live in rebellion against God. I don't want to turn away. That's why all the challenges were there. Don't drift. Don't turn away. Stay the course. Keep walking faithfully with Jesus. Why? Because you don't want to be like Cain. You don't want to walk in the way of Cain. You don't want to drift. Abel, the representation is that of one that's living by faith in Christ. So this is, what the, this is the picture that he holds up to these Hebrew readers. It's like, don't be like Cain, be like Abel, who walked by faith. His very life uh, was, was an act of worship before God. It was by faith that Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So when I look at this, it's like th- this really represents There's only two types of religion in the world, the religion of Cain or following Jesus like Abel. Because Abel depends on the blood of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross to experience forgiveness and healing and restoration and brought into right relationship with God. Cain represents that guy that depends on good works and man-pleasing religion to somehow keep him out of the gates of hell. Those are your representations. Those representations become really a picture of the two natures that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. Because there's there's two natures that we have. We are born just like, like Cain and Abel, we were born into sin. The Bible says that we are all born dead in our trespasses and sin. And Cain represents that nature in the flesh. He represents that sin nature, that nature that that is sinful and separated from God. Our sin nature causes us to naturally drift away from intimacy with Christ. Listen, I don't know about you guys, but in my sin, if I'm not walking in fellowship with God and deep dependence by faith every day, my sin nature is not going to draw me back to intimacy with Jesus right? My sin nature is constantly attacking me, pulling me away from Christ. Just like God told Cain in chapter 4, verse 7 of of Genesis, sin is crouching at your door. It's waiting to attack you. Why? Because you're vulnerable because of your flesh. Any parents in the house? How many of you just gave birth to some incredible children who never sinned? Anybody? Yeah, right? It doesn't happen. I'm a dad with three kids, and I love my kids, great little sinners that they are. I never, I never had to teach them to sin. It was amazing. Of all the things I tried to instill in them, I never had to teach them to sin. I never had to teach them to be selfish or to lie or to be deceitful. Why? Because it's part of our nature. We are born sinful people, and Cain represents that sin. See, the fact that people attend religious meetings and participate in church activities really is not proof that they're true believers. You can go through all the motions like Cain, and no one's going to know, and it represents that form of godliness. God, speaking to Isaiah in chapter 29, verse 13, as he's speaking of his people, he said, this people draw near with their mouth and they honor me with their lips while their hearts are still far from me. The Holman Christian Standard Bible puts it this way. He says, these people approach me with their speeches to honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me and human rules direct their worship of me. You know what he's saying? He goes, he's basically saying walking into church doesn't make you a Christian. Walking into church doesn't make you some faithful Christ follower any more than walking into McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. It just doesn't work that way. 
right? You can come and you can go through all the motions and you can deceive everybody on the planet, but you're not going to deceive God because you're broken, you're sinful, and you need a Savior, and His name is Jesus. And Abel represents that man that's walking in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. He's walking in the Spirit. Abel represents that nature that is surrendered to Christ. See, to live a life of genuine worship, we must risk it all and say yes to life by faith in Christ. Yes, God, yes, by faith, I'm going to walk with you. By faith, I'm going to risk it all. By faith, I'm going to walk with you day by day. But we do that knowing that there's a battle that takes place. Paul deals with it so clearly in Romans chapter 7. Paul, the great apostle Paul, I'm pretty sure he had like some big S on his chest, right? Mr. Super Christian, that's kind of the way we think of him. But, but yet in Romans chapter 7, he speaks of this battle between the sinful nature that he still has and the Spirit of God that lives in him. And in the margin of my Bible in Romans 7, I have two words written, civil war. Why? Because there's a battle that takes place between the Holy Spirit of God that lives in me and my sin nature, my flesh. And they're constantly waging war every day of my life. Anybody else? They're waging war. And I can choose to live by faith in, in the spirit like Abel, or I can choose like Cain to live in the flesh and turn my face away from God. And it's a battle. Please don't get me wrong. It is a battle for every one of us that we have to wage that war. So there's two representations, there's two natures, but obviously then there's two responses, right? Uh, there's two responses. Cain's response is rejection of Christ uh, and life on your own. If you choose the way of Cain, you're rejecting Christ and you're choosing to live life on your own. Uh, Cain did not repent of his sin. We, we see nowhere in scripture did he repent. Instead, he showed regret. He showed despair, which is, I think is what a lot of people have done in their life. They've come face to face with the holiness of God. They've seen him for who he is, and they've apologized for being caught, but they've not repented of their sin. Again, I know this as a dad. <laughs> when you walk in a room and one of your kids is crying, the other one's holding a stick. And you go, what just happened? I don't know. I don't know. All of a sudden, he started crying, you know? It's like, okay, wait, did you hit him? Well, I, I might have hit him. Okay, tell him you're sorry. I'm sorry. Now, is that a genuine act of repentance? No. You, you know what it is? I'm sorry I'm caught. I'm sorry that he's such a, a wuss that he cried just because I hit him with a stick. He should be tougher than that. I'm sorry I dropped that giant brick on his foot. These are real life stories, by the way, in case you're wondering about my life, right? There's a difference between genuine repentance and, and saying, I'm sorry because I'm caught in my sin. And I think that's the way many people have come to Jesus. They've come to God going, man, I know that I'm a sinner. and God, I sure am sorry. That's not genuine repentance. Repentance is brokenness before a holy God, seeing him for who he is and responding appropriately in brokenness. And so we can choose to reject like Cain, right? Because Cain, going back to Genesis 4, verse 14, he says, you have driven me out. <laughs> right away, he started blaming God, right? Oh, God, you're doing this to me. Oh, God, you're doing this. Oh, now everyone's out to kill me, right? He, he started, and that's exactly what I do. That's what you do when we're in rejection and we're walking away from God. All of a sudden, we begin to blame all our problems on God, Oh, I forget that I have this sin nature that's crouching at my door waiting to devour me, waiting to lead me astray. Listen to me. If Satan can, can somehow persuade a bunch of angels to leave the glory and splendor of heaven and follow him, I promise you he will persuade you to live a life that's distasteful to the Lord. Of course he is. He's going to do everything he can to lure you away from the presence of the Lord. And your choice is to know, stand firm like Abel, right, in repentance, walking by faith and risking it all in obedience to Christ. Or like Cain, rejection of Christ and life on your own. You know, it's interesting too because Cain, when I read the text, I also see a fear and a hopelessness in his life. He turned his face from God. He was living in despair. He was now running from God. And I see a hopelessness. I see a despair. Listen, I don't know about you. When, when you look at our culture, when you look at our world, 
Anybody else see hopelessness and despair? Now listen, if, if we're to take on the mind of Christ as a follower of Jesus, if I'm supposed to become more like him, if, if I'm supposed to be doing the things that Christ did, what did Jesus say? He said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. What am I supposed to be doing? If Jesus is pursuing me in my sin, am I not supposed to be pursuing others in their sin to point them back to Jesus for restoration and, and healing? You see, in my life, and, and maybe you've been there too, maybe, maybe not, maybe I'm the only one that's turned my back on God and run from him. And it seems like the further I run from God and the faster I run from God, I, I get further from him and further from him, and yet I look and he's still there. See, when, whenever I'm willing to repent, not, not just say, oh gosh, I sure am sorry I'm caught, but the word repent means to turn from sin. And if I'm turning from sin and self to someone, that's the person of Jesus, I have always been amazed at the faithfulness of God. No matter how far I run, no matter how fast I run, when I come to the place of saying, God, I am so sorry, I, I forgive me, please forgive me my sin, I repent to you in my sin. Whenever I come to that place, no matter how far I've gone, no matter how long I've been, no matter how fast it's taken me to get there or how long it's taken me to get there, when I turn, I am constantly amazed that Jesus is right there. Why? Because he is constantly in pursuit of me. He, he's like the, I told you before, I'm not a runner, right? Uh, I get the urge to run, I'll lie down and it goes away. But when, when I'm running, when I've watched enough track and field and I watch these runners and they're handing off a baton, right? You've seen these guys, right? The relay races and stuff. And, and that guy's running and he's doing all he can to run away because he wants that guy to run as fast as he can to catch him and hand off the baton. That's exactly what Jesus does. No matter how far I'm running and I try to run fast and far, guess what? Jesus is in hot pursuit, and I love that. Jesus was in hot pursuit of Cain when he said, what are you doing? Why are you angry with me? Why, why are you so discouraged? Why are you so down? You think that's why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 3, verse 13 said, but encourage one another daily so that none of you will be hardened by sin's deceitfulness? Is there anybody in the room that doesn't need some encouragement today? But you know what? Sunday afternoon's coming, and Monday's coming, and Tuesday's coming, and that's why we need people every single day of our life to speak God's truth in our life, to encourage us. Why? So that we will not be deceived by sin. But God is constantly, constantly in pursuit. I love John Stott. He said, the essence of sin is man submitting or, or substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That's what God does, right? Uh, we, we try to substitute God with ourselves, while God is saying, no, I, I'm substituting your sin with me. Guys, that's love. That, that's this repentance that he speaks of. And so when he talks about Abel's blood crying out for vengeance, it takes us back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. I love this because he says, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Why? Because Abel's blood would have represented vengeance while God's blood speaks to forgiveness and healing and restoration to right relationship. So when we see this name in, in Hebrews chapter 11, it's this restoration God is redeeming you. He's constantly pursuing you. Don't drift. Don't run. Don't turn away. Just come back to Christ. In repentance, turn to him. As we close, the bumper video that we're using in this series for the next nine weeks asks these questions, and I just want to ask them to you. Will you do what's necessary? See, if God is calling you to risk it all to live a life of faith, will you do what is necessary? Will you go where you are called? God may call you to a really strange place like your neighbor's house. God may call you to a real strange place like your, your workplace, to your family, to your friends. He may call you around the world. I don't know, but, but are you willing to just put your yes on the table and say, yes, God, wherever you call me, I'm willing to go because I'm willing to risk it all because you are faithful and trustworthy. Will, will you say yes regardless of the cost? But, but God, you don't understand. If I take a stand for the truth of your word, it, it may cost me friends. It may cost me followers on social media. 
are you willing to say yes, no matter the cost, I'm willing to say yes. Uh, will you risk it all? Will you live a life of reckless abandon because God is faithful and trustworthy? And over these next few weeks, as we see these stories where people risked it all and saw God do some incredible things, it starts with this foundation of us living a life of radical worship and absolute surrender to Christ. I love the way John Piper once said this because he said, as we walk in obedience, you know, what we think is a risk is really not a risk at all. The more I've grown to know Jesus Christ, what I realize is if I'm walking in obedience to Christ, Christ is never going to lead me somewhere that's dangerous. There's, there's no risk because if God is leading me, God is already there. If God is leading me to a place, God has already prepared that place for me. That's what he promised. So it's really not a risk if I'm walking in absolute obedience and surrender. And so to that point, John Piper once said, he said, if you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risks will be high, and your joy will be full. As we live in radical surrender and risk it all, is it going to be uncomfortable? Absolutely. I promise you. Are, are things going to be uncertain? Certainly they will. Are they going to be scary? Yeah, most definitely. Are they going to be rewarding? Yes. Because it's in that obedience, it's through our surrender, it's in walking with Jesus that we find our true identity, we find our true purpose for life itself. Because that's exactly what Jesus promised, John 10.10, 10. he said, I've come that you might have life and you might have life more abundantly. Let's pray together. Father, in this place, we simply say yes. God, I don't know the question, but my answer to you is yes, because you are faithful, you are trustworthy. I can surrender myself to you, God, because you have proven yourself faithful and true time and time and time and time again. Lord, over these next weeks, as we look at the characters that, that are displayed, Father, we again see the faithfulness of who you are from generation to generation. We just saw it in Hebrews. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God, because you've been faithful in the past, you are faithful in our present, and you will be faithful in our future. And to that, God, we can risk it all because you're a great and mighty God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.